This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Elliot Page is a critically acclaimed actor whose starring role as a pregnant teenager in 2007's Juno led to an Oscar nomination, two BAFTAs and a Golden Globe at the age of just 20. He later went on to act in a series of movies and TV shows, including Christopher Nolan's Inception, the X-Men franchise and the Netflix superhero series, The Umbrella Academy. But although many of you might know him primarily as an actor, Page's recently published memoir proves that he is also a profoundly talented writer. Page Boy, which is already a New York Times number one bestseller, tells the story of his journey to selfhood. In it, he lyrically depicts the struggle to exist in a society determined to ignore, marginalise and control his queerness. It is a love story of sorts, set against the backdrop of a sexist, homophobic Hollywood, in which the greatest love turns out to be Page's alignment with his truest self. He publicly came out as trans in December 2020 and later appeared on the cover of Time magazine. Page Boy has been called brutally honest, eloquent and enthralling, and a book about what it means to be human. To read it, I believe, is to understand the fundamental power of being seen as we truly are. In the introductory author's note, Page writes, I've spent much of my life chipping away toward the truth while terrified to cause a collapse. Elliot Page, it's my honour to welcome you to How to Fail. Thank you so much for having me and for your kind words. Thank you so much for this extraordinary book. You really are a phenomenal writer and it's always such a joy to discover someone who is talented in one area also has this whole other talent. (laughs) And I know that you've been an inveterate reader for many years and a recommender of books, 
But why did you decide to write your own right now? What was the initial spark? Gosh, I mean, there was, I think, a couple of things that led to the initial spark. One was that it felt possible for the first time. And when I say that, I mean that I had the actual space in my brain mm -hmm. and the ability to focus and feel comfortable and present enough for something like that to be possible. Whereas before, it didn't feel like it could be a reality. And I feel that's, you know, of course, aligned in a time where there's so many attacks towards trans people, anti-trans rhetoric, constant dehumanization, lies about our lives and who we are, about our health care. And it felt, you know, like I should grasp the opportunity as, as someone who has this platform to share my story and to reclaim my own narrative versus it being told by others or things projected upon me. And, and hopefully maybe it could allow people to feel comforted or less alone, seen, and potentially those who aren't necessarily familiar with trans issues who might not know or be close to trans people and think they don't know trans people. Maybe it could highlight that we're just humans yeah. <laughs> trying to, you know, all we want to do is exist and mm -hmm. thrive, you know. You write this thing, and I want to get the quote exactly right. As a trans person and a public one, the sensation is that I'm always pleading with people to believe me. I thought that that was so powerful. And I wonder what the weight of that feels like. Because not only do you feel the weight of being an activist, I imagine, but you also feel the weight of having to prove your very existence. How heavily does that weigh on you? That certain weight, I feel less and less as time goes on. You know, the more embodied I feel, I feel like that has continues to get better. You know, certain anxieties like continue to get better because I'm still quite early in my transition. And obviously, especially when I first started writing the book, certain aspects of what do other people think I've noticed, thankfully, doesn't seem to affect me as much. But of course, that does seem to be a perpetual thing, you know, constantly doubted or gaslit as lots of trans and queer people can relate to, of course. Yes, we just deal a lot with people doubting us and our lives and telling us we're not who we really are. And uh, of course, that can be frustrating or tiring, but I notice so many things just continue to get better. I'm so glad to hear it. You strike me as someone who has for a very long time been guided by a quest for truth. You're a truth teller and a truth seeker, if I've understood you correctly. <laughs> and it's why I loved that quote that I used in the introduction about chipping away toward this truth. I wonder how you feel about truth. It's such a huge question, but how important is the truth to you? Gosh, I guess... Uh, uh, <laughs> In three words or less. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, gosh, I suppose for me, it would be arguably one of the most important things to strive for as we're alive. Already, what even is this? And by this, I mean life and existence. So ideally, I'd I'd want to do everything I can to lean into truth and coming into my own authentic self. And I'd wish that for everyone, of course. I want to talk to you a bit about Page Boy and the way that you structure it, because it isn't a chronological structuring. It is 
fragmentary and lyrical. And I wondered two things. One, why you decided to write it that way. And two, how difficult it was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I knew right away when I started that I wanted the book to be a nonlinear structure. I think, one, I enjoy that in general with books. And for me, trans and queer narratives and becoming are nonlinear, you know, and I wanted to reflect that on the page, getting close to one's truth, pulling back, getting closer again, pulling back. And especially with trans narratives, we talk about the sort of before and after all the time. And I don't, you know, see it that way. I think it's so for me, it's so much about becoming integrated and I hope people sort of feel that this nonlinear aim at integration, you know, was it difficult? No, it wasn't really. Oddly, the first time something did truly click and I sat down to write was the first chapter in the book, Paula, it's called. And it's very close to what I wrote that very first day. And I think at first, especially after getting the book deal, I was like, oh God, now I have to write a whole book. You know, so I was, at the beginning, it was what came up and I'd write, 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 and then try and branch off of one story and create form around that. Then as I progressed, I started to like, oh, I'm going to choose this period and this friendship, this relationship, this incident, and build around that. And then later in the process, really worked on sort of moving around the puzzle pieces in regards to laying out all the chapters. As you say so eloquently there, there is no before and after to your experience. And the rest of society sometimes, I imagine, seems fixated on the notion that there is. And this is coming up for me, and I don't know whether it's helpful to offer, but I'll offer it anyway. One of my favourite sculptors is a woman called Barbara Hepworth. And she always said that the art to her sculpture was chipping away to reveal the essential truth of the material that she was working with, rather than trying to make it into something else. Mm -hmm. And I was just really reminded of that when reading Page Boy, because you have known, and there's this bit where you write where you used to try and pee standing up when you were four, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you know who you are, but it's about having been able to make yourself visible, the essential truth of yourself to everyone else. There's no question there. I'm just... <laughs> yeah. No, but you're like, and even though I did know, I have known, writing the book was healing and validating in so many ways because my earliest memories, preschool, basically all revolve around gender and how really knowing who I was, perplexed by how the world was perceiving me and seeing me. And that just persisted and persisted and... Growing up, especially where and, and when I did, there was no examples. There was no language for this. And one of the questions that did come up as I was writing it was, why did this have to take so long? You know, there's a bit of a grief to that. But, I mean, obviously, we know why. It's mm-hmm. society. It's expectations that we all deal with, right? Trans, cis, straight, queer, what have you. We're all dealing with toxic expectations that force us into a tiny little box, you know? But, Yeah. One of the other things that I learned in Page Boy was about the Halifax explosion of 1916, which I found riveting and I'd never heard about. 17, but that's fine. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. I just wouldn't want someone listening to me like... <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, don't be sorry. No. Um, will you tell us about that? Because that's where you grew up, isn't it? I'm very interested in psychogeography and how where we grow up sort of informs how we see the world. Tell us about it. Yeah. Oh my gosh, how much time do we have? I can... <laughs> There's so many details that you almost don't want to get me started on it. (laughs) But quickly, essentially, in 
December in 1917 in Halifax in the harbor, very, very large harbor, a ship called the Mont Blanc, which was carrying something like 19 times the weight of the Statue of Liberty of like explosives, like this enormous, enormous amount, I think some of the highest recorded ever on a ship, into the Halifax Harbor. And as a ship was delayed in leaving and a rather disgruntled captain was trying to speed out, essentially this game of chicken began. And as last minute, the Mont Blanc tried to turn, they collided and it burned for about 15, 20 minutes, and then it exploded. And it was the largest man-made eruption explosion previous to the atomic bomb. And it decimated the city. It was a horrific, horrific, tragic event. There's much more to the story. I encourage people to learn more about it. And I happened to grow up in the area of the city that was particularly flattened. I think it was around 2,000 people died. And it really raised the city to the ground. What do you think that experience was like for you growing up in the neighborhood that was built? Is it Hydra? What's it called? The Hydra Stones. Yes. Do you think that that affected you and how you saw the world? It must have on some level, I suppose, that degree of sudden tragedy. It was just interesting how growing up you were, and you just taught it was an accident, which isn't really the full truth. You know, it was the horrible consequence of war at the end of the day. It was World War I that this munition ship was going to be going over with a convoy to Europe and led to, yes, immense destruction overnight. I think half of the city became homeless, obviously. So many children left without parents. Yeah, a truly horrific event. Mm. I appreciate it's a sort of weird question, but I suppose it's because there's this seam running through your work in Pageboy, which is about buried secrets, things left unsaid, hidden truths. And I found it very affecting when you taught me about the Halifax explosion. So thank you for that as well. Less heavy question, your dog Mo, yeah. how important was he during the writing process? He gave fantastic notes. Um, (laughs) I mean, it was just so lovely to have this companion, obviously. I mean, one of the things I liked about the experience was that I was alone. And maybe, I mean, I love the collaborative nature of making film, of making television. But there was something really enjoyable about sitting by myself in my apartment or up in Nova Scotia in a cabin and... It was lovely to have Mo as a companion, as break, let's go for a walk. You know, it was, yeah. How do you feel when people call you brave? I feel uncomfortable with it. Yeah. Yeah, I I feel just because I'm just existing as myself and also the degree of privilege and resources I have to access, well, all kinds of things, but, you know, particularly the healthcare that's allowed me to have this life and be myself. When I think of the realities for the majority of trans people, just people that are far more brave than me. Before we get onto your failures, one final question. You are someone who, through your work, has visual records of what your life was like when you were growing up. Do you ever re-watch your old films or how do you feel about Juno now? I mean, I don't rewatch my old films but never did really. I mean, some things I rewatched when writing the book, things I referenced and scenes I wanted to be able to describe in a specific way, of course. Something like Juno, I don't think it would bother me to watch. 
I loved playing that character. I loved who she was. I loved that something about her did feel fresh and new and how she presented. And it was one of the best filmmaking experiences I've had. It's more the aftermath of that. You know, I could definitely watch Juno. I don't want to see anything from the time of promoting it and leading up to the Oscars and that whole you know, campaign season and what have you. I'd rather not see anything from that period. Because people put you under pressure to dress a certain way and present a certain way. Yeah, and to hide who I was, disguise who I was, and I was very closeted and very in love. And my girlfriend wasn't coming to events with me like this is straight people, you know. I loved Juno. And actually so many people I've spoken to about interviewing you today have said how formative it was for them. And I think you did a terrific job. So I'm glad that you feel fondly towards it still. Let's get on to your first failure. So your first failure is, in your words, that you failed by being closeted, disguising myself and hiding my partners. Can I ask before we dig into it, how do you feel about the language of quote unquote closeting? Because I want to be sensitive and respectful. And there's a sense that when we talk about coming out or being in the closet, that there's something to feel shameful about. And I don't want you to feel that I'm thinking that. Oh, I really appreciate you saying that. That's okay. I mean, that's, those are the terms I personally use. And so, yeah. Okay. Why did you choose this as your first failure? I mean, I think that was a time in my life where I, of course, significantly struggled and Existing in that way was extremely detrimental, you know, to my mental health and to my physical health, quite frankly. It was just, it was like eroding me, you know. And it really set me on this path that was hard to come back from. And as much as I was being pressured, or in many ways it felt choiceless, like I wasn't ready to come out for a while. I I just wasn't. But I was an adult who was making the decision to do that, to go along with it. And I regret that, you know, and not just for myself and how I felt, but for lying by omission, for not using my privilege and and platform to be a visible person, to be present for the community, to be vocal for the community and working with and along a toxic system, essentially. Mm. Are you talking specifically here about the years when you were in public prominence? So the, the fame years, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. yeah. Because it must be so excruciating to be living your life so seemingly publicly and to know that internally it absolutely doesn't reflect the core truth of who you are. It must just be so debilitating. It was, yes. And also to my relationships and hurtful to my partners and hurtful to the love that should have been able to flourish. I mean, I barely even if ever held a partner's hand outside until I was like 27 years old or went on a properly out date. Yeah, I got to a point in periods of my life when I say like I could barely function. I I do mean that. I really mean that. I was not okay. It was not okay. Can you tell us about some of the moments, some of the interactions you had in Hollywood and beyond 
where you were made to feel that you couldn't live your truth? People could be pretty direct about it. And always in the in the suggestion that it's for protection, right? We want you to have the best career you can have and you keep your private life private. Meanwhile, cis heterosexual couples are walking down the red carpet and that seems to be fine. You know, they're mm-hmm. not keeping that private, but okay. Even aside from people that I worked with who were encouraging me to be closeted and encouraging me to present a certain way. I remember the first time I was just working up the courage to tell like a fellow actor I'd be working with something like, oh, my girlfriend's coming to visit. Even now I'm like sensing the like flashing back to like what those moments were like. And that I would have been about 25, I think, or just under 25. And I said it to an actor I was working with and he just went, don't tell people that. Just keep that to yourself. Just, just keep that to yourself. Now I'd be like, excuse me, you know, like, but you know, you just take that all in. It's another layer upon all the other layers that of course began when you were a kid and the shame and Mm -hmm. that you're left with just becomes another drop in the bucket. Yes. Can we talk a bit about shame? Because you wrote, or actually I think it was an interview that you gave about being bullied at school and how coming through that is a process of unlearning. Mm -hmm. And I'd never heard it expressed that way. And I so related to it as someone who also was bullied at school, but for totally different reasons. But that process of unlearning, can you tell us a bit more about what you meant by that? I suppose I mean it in the sense that the shame and sense of embarrassment that we carry is like not ours, it's theirs. It's what they put upon us. Those who have said certain things, acted a certain way. And the unlearning is a letting go. It's, well, that's just not mine to carry anymore, I suppose. Did you feel bullied in Hollywood? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) From time to time, absolutely. And that internalized shame, what was it, do you think, that you were most scared of? You, Elliot? In regards to coming out or being myself? Yes, and that whole period of your life when people were telling you how you should be. I mean, the feeling was, oh, I'll never work again. I won't get to do this thing that I love. And I suppose just the feeling of judgment, really the shame itself, it felt too big. It did control my life and controlled my way of thinking. I remember first properly seeing a therapist when I was maybe 23 and her saying, you know, we need to figure out how to have you come out and make it possible for you to come out. And without thought, I just went, no, that is impossible. That is impossible. I will never be able to be out. And I really believed it. Mm -hmm. I think back now, and I'm just, that's preposterous, but I really believed it. And it was, yeah, a narrative I took on until I was able to go, wait a second. (laughs) Like, wait, why am I listening to this, actually? Why am I listening to this? This is my life. But I think, yeah, a lot of it was um, this thing I love, this what felt like the one thing I knew how to do would be taken away. And then I was so unwell and tired of being closeted and tired of relationships being under such strain and tired of not taking responsibility, especially when it comes to, again, privilege and resources and, and stepping up, that living my life became far more important than being in movies. Has that fear gone now? Yeah. Good. Yeah. And has the shame gone? 
I'm sure there's things lingering around there somewhere, but I'm sitting here in conscious conversation. Yes, it has. I love being queer and trans. Yeah. I love it. I love it for you. Sorry, I'm so emotional. Uh I love it for you. I just think that's so beautiful and so powerful. Tell me why you love acting. Oh, man. In some ways, it's because it's indescribable, I have to Mm. say, but I'll do my best. You know, I love the... I love this sensation of working with another person or people and connecting and creating this moment together that, pardon the pun, does feel transcendent and investigating this character that's just on the page and connecting to something deep in them. Truth, I suppose. I think it is another way of accessing truth. What does truth mean? And finding that character's truth and, you know, emoting and creating an arc of physicality, what have you, from that place. And I find it incredibly magical, a fantastic excuse to feel, you know, Mm -hmm. and a society that kind of encourages us not to, you know, get to go to work and just feel and emote all over the place. Obviously, it's come and presented certain challenges in my life, being an actor, and it's also been a huge gift. Mm. You had to shapeshift a lot in your younger life, not only because your physical presentation was not aligned with the truth of who you were, but also because your parents split up and you had that classic thing of living in two homes and different familial relationships, and you changed schools a lot. Do you think that helped form you as an actor? I mean, maybe potentially. I don't know if I have a good answer for that. But yeah. (laughs) But... uh, it could do, or I think it did become an excuse for me to feel. Mm. I wasn't necessarily sure how to do it or how to express myself in my real life, so to speak. And that's where I think a lot of my emotion went. Mm. Just last point on this failure, which strikes me very much as society's failure rather than your own, although I appreciate the insight that you've shared with us. Do you sometimes find yourself wishing you could go back and do all of those relationships that you felt that you had to hide and all of those acting roles and jobs again as you truly are I do sometimes like you know I can't help but have that sensation in moments or a sense of grief on some level wishing I could relive certain moments again but at the end of the day I don't actually think that's how I look at life and Mm -hmm. I know that it just has been my journey and here's where I find myself and it is just the road that it's been and we all go on very winding roads with ups and downs and I certainly wish I didn't have to live through the degree of pain I lived through in moments and I do feel like I lost a fair amount of time. Do you believe that we are sent lives to live for some reason bigger than us? No, I kind of like, like, sure, could be. I don't not believe it. I just have no idea what any of this is, you know? So, <laughs> but you never know. That's how I feel about life. I'm like, I don't, you know, yeah. you never know. Your guess is as good as mine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like before we started recording when we were talking about our pets and Elliot said, I'm not not a cat person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah.
We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Your second failure is failure at friendships during periods of isolation. Can you tell me what you mean by that? <sighs> I mean it in, in the periods of my life where I did struggle the most. Well, my move often was getting in a relationship. I did that. I didn't really know how to exist alone. So I, not that I didn't feel love and care, but really much cling to someone and get in often codependent relationships where that was my focus. And I would sort of disappear and not show up for people in, in the way that I should have or not be responsive. And, and to those who were very much there for me, and let long stretches of time go without being in touch with certain people and not being there for them in difficult moments, maybe not even knowing about the difficult moment because I was so absent. That's something that I feel was definitely a failure. And I imagine you have spoken to all of these friends about this now because many of them are in Page Boy. What have those conversations been like? I'm lucky that everyone is quite... (laughs) compassionate and and understanding and forgiving of those moments for sure and if anything I think not that they weren't hurt or and rightfully so I think also worried at a certain point people lose patience Mm. I don't blame them for that at all of course so have you lost friendships no but I'd say in moments I've had to like rebuild them and prove that I can show up and and be more present But yeah, there was definitely moments where I slipped away. I'm extremely interested in the nature of friendship and have written an entire book about it. And I think it's one of those great loves in our lives that never gets enough attention. And the knock-on effect of that is that there's very rarely a language that we can reach for to express the unique, extraordinary complexity of it. And so sometimes that means that we don't have the conversations that we need to have with our closest friends. And because it's such a huge term, our expectations of friendship can be so vastly different within that relationship. And I am now a huge advocate of understanding 
what our metrics of friendship are. So for me, my most important metric is not quality time. I don't need to have a phone call. I hate phone calls. I don't need to see someone regularly for dinner. I need to know that they're thinking of me with generosity of spirit and I do the same for them. And we always think the best of each other. And there's something very powerful about holding that space. That in itself is tangible love. I wonder what you think your metric of friendship is now. I very much agree with what you you just said. Also, in many ways, everybody's different. You know, it might be very important to one friend that they might need to have you be more responsive. That might be something that that friend, because of their life and, and their expectations, that might be something that they need. And, and I'd want to show up that way for them. Whereas other friends, we can not talk for seven months and then see each other and absolutely no time's passed. And that doesn't affect me, you know, personally in, in that regard. So I'd say it does vary to individual on some level. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's about trust and care and someone seeing you for your true self and you're there for each other when when you need to be. Mm. I completely agree with you about friendship. Friendship's been definitely one of the things that's saved me in many ways. Yes. Chosen family and found family and there's people in my life there. I just truly do not know where I would be without well, let's talk about some of them because I want to talk about your tattoos Yeah. <laughs> because you do something which I think is so wonderful and has sort of inspired me. You get tattoos of certain friends' names. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about the tattoos of friends' names that you have and who they are and what they represent to you? Sure. The, well, the first tattoo I ever got is a friend's nickname. It's C. Keens, which is for Catherine Keener, who's amazing actor and human. one of my favorites along with Elliot Page oh that's right I mean <laughs> Catherine Keener is much better than Elliot Page Keener I first met when I was 19 we made a film together that was quite you know I go into the whole thing but quite a brutal movie based on a true story and we just deeply connected and she's always always been there for me that is someone who I know to the bottom of my core would do anything for me and myself likewise for her For example, in the time when Juno was coming out, the peak of its success, that whole period, I was not okay and like living in a hotel in LA and she had me come live with her and really just supported me and has throughout my whole life. And in some of my most difficult moments, just really held me. Vetran is my friend Julia's middle name, who's one of my dearest friends who likewise I known since I was 16. I don't know where I would be without BBs for my dear friend Beatrice Brown, who you just met. <laughs> yes. Famous Beatrice. The famous Beatrice. <laughs> and we have the Wig here for Kristen Wig's last name, who is someone who's showed up for me. And yeah. I have Mark's initials up here. And Mark is in the first chapter and the last chapter of my book. So yes, friendship, as you can tell, is very important to me. It's literally written all over you. Yeah. You also have a tattoo, I believe, that just says turtle. I do. Okay, why is that? That really was a, I mean, I love turtles. I love that you love turtles. That was definitely just a bit of a random one. And and B did most of these tattoos. She did. That's for my friend Spike. And B did a lot of these. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Kirsten Wig there. 
And I know that you you met her through Whippet, is that right? Yes. Which was directed by Drew Barrymore. Yes. Who gave you an incredible piece of advice that I literally quoted yesterday. I love it. I still think about it too. Tell yeah. us what that piece of advice is. The keys are always in your pocket. As in, maybe you're saying you're feeling quite anxious about a decision or going somewhere or what have you. And the keys are always in your pocket. Like, it's okay to turn around. Mm -hmm. It's okay to stop. It's okay to say no. It's okay, you know. Yeah. Especially as an adult. And I think often if you are working young as a child, if you are, as Drew was, as you were, a child star or a child actor, you are so accustomed to not having a choice and not having a voice that I imagine it can be very difficult sometimes to remind yourself that, no, I have agency here. Definitely. I think you get pressured tremendously or guilted pushed into certain things where, yes, you just feel like you're on this conveyor belt and you can't get off. And so that was, yeah, that was very wise. And I, obviously I never forgot it. It's yeah. in the book. I don't know? forget it now. Yeah. So thank you for passing on Drew Barrymore's <laughs> words of wisdom. Your third failure is a flip side to failure too. And in your words, it's failing to reach out to people during those hard periods and being honest with them about how you were really doing. Yeah. I imagine that if you have been forced to hide for so long, it can be such a leap to then start telling the truth. I mean, how do you even do that? I think I also, there was periods where I didn't even know how. I think because of the success that came with my acting career, the privileges that come with that, I felt like I wasn't allowed to not feel okay, you know? And any negative sensation, feeling sadness, I would berate myself for feeling ungrateful and didn't know how to say to someone like, I'm actually really not okay. I don't know how to function. I don't know how people go about their days. I can't get out of bed. I can barely make it to one meeting in a day. You know, it was hard for me to, yeah, even, even know how to say anything at all. I didn't even think about saying it in certain points in my life. It just acted like everything was okay and things were under control and they weren't. Where do you think all of that went? Where did you put it? Well... It clearly was making me unwell and sick, mentally, physically. When I think of different kind of chipping away, like I was getting like, chipped away. Mm. That's how it felt. And then thankfully at a certain point when I was clearly not doing okay, lost a lot of weight, vicious panic attacks, collapsing, all these things. It was actually my manager who helped get me to my first therapist and even that was, I'd sit in the room and be like, why do I have the right to be here and pay all this money to this and this and this? And I'm this privileged kid and da, da, da. And why am I, you know? And in some ways, I think that's also a defense mechanism. It's a way to not have to go there. Yes. To not have to talk about what you really need to talk about. I think for me, it was always avoid, 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 which made me more and more and more unwell until there was, you know, no option. Either it was you're going to survive or something really bad's going to happen. Do you think your friends and your romantic partners at this time saw that? Did they try to help and could you not receive it? Or were you so good at masking it that you made it impossible for them to reach out? I think I was good at masking it to a degree and also 
people did try, but I think just didn't know what to do. Mm. It must have been terrifying, and I'm so sorry you went through that. And I imagine it's also really difficult to revisit when I'm asking you questions about it. So I I appreciate you for for your emotional honesty right now. Thank you. After that therapist, who was the first person, if you feel comfortable saying, that you felt able to share with? The closest people to me in my life, like Beatrice and Julia and Keener, those who I felt always really always wanted me to be able to step into my full self and Mm. I think probably felt helpless in ways in terms of how they could assist me in doing that. And now even he lives in Oxford, you know, that's why so she's here right now and we're getting to spend time together. But even last night, it's just like reflecting on how I used to be and feel and where I am now. I just feel so grateful. I could have never imagined getting to feel the way I feel now. Was writing page boy a healing exercise for you i mean i know that's probably not why you did it but was one of the byproducts a sense of healing and peace very healing healing simply for me personally going through a lot of that being able to acknowledge a lot of it validate so much of my experiences and it's healed relationships in my life it's made my mother and i closer it's made an ex who I write about who was very, very closeted, the Ryan very yes. named in the book. There's been a lot of healing there with us, and that's been really beautiful. So there's been healing all around of it. Mm. Yeah, it's been really nice. Well, I think that's one of the things that really strikes me reading your work is your belief in the capacity of people to evolve. Can you tell us a bit more about your mother and your relationship with her now? Yeah, I mean, my mom did not have the easiest time with my queerness for a while. You know, probably wasn't until my mid-20s where I feel like she finally was accepting and had worked through whatever was going on with her that was making that challenging. Just loved me and, and my partners and was so sweet and caring and became an advocate and an ally and all those things, you know, but it was a journey. Mm. The first time I tried to talk about my sexuality at all, when I was 15, she yelled, that doesn't exist, you know, and it caused friction and tension and distance in our relationship, which is so unfortunate, but understandable. She was born in 1954 in St. John, New Brunswick, and her dad was a minister, you know, like so many of us like literally all of us, there's things where we have to grow, we have to expand, we learn more and and we change. And my mom has absolutely done that. And I think in writing the book, sharing with her the things I wanted to have in the book, it let us talk about certain moments in a real way. And I think a lot of weight lifted, a lot of weight lifted. I love to hear that. There are repeated incidents in Page Boy, which... I'm not going to go into because everyone should just go and read it and buy it right now. In fact, stop listening to this podcast now and just go and buy Page Boy. But there are repeated incidents of the sort of bullying that we touched on within the industry that you found yourself. But I wonder if you would mind terribly touching on one of them. And it's a very specific one. But the reason I pick it is because I think that it conveys so much, not least your own unease with what you were being 
asked to do. And it's when you had to pose for a photograph for the cover of a magazine in the run-up to the Oscars for Juno. Do you mind telling us what happened and how it made you feel? It was this thing? Yes, yes. exactly. Okay, I was yeah. just... <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, you can, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're only listening, yeah. Elliot is kicking Doing his foot. Kick, yeah. <laughs> um, oof, yeah, that was this very odd moment. I think back now, it's just like, what? That something would happen with me in certain moments where I would just sort of clamp shut and I found it very difficult to talk. My brain would be wanting to make words and I, for whatever reason, couldn't do it. Like, it was just how everything that was going on in that time, how it was manifesting. And that was a photo shoot where it sort of showed up. There was one option of what to wear. It was this, you know, specific dress. It was, you know, probably my sixth photo shoot that week of the same sort of, you know, and I was sitting in the chair getting hair and makeup done and just sort of numb and unable to communicate. And the director was sitting there and they were talking to me struggling to respond and then they just lifted their leg like really pulled their leg back and just pounded the you know just like kicked the chair so hard and went like do you even talk I was just like in shock you know in shock such bizarre behavior so upsetting and so disempowering and it hurt me to read it just the image of you there unable to speak your truth. Thank you for retelling that. It is a very vivid moment in the book. I wonder if I could draw this to a close by asking you what you would say to young Elliot, age four, trying to pee standing up. What would you say to him right now? I'd say, listen to yourself, trust yourself, you know who you are, you're loved, and that shame or embarrassment that people are going to try and put on you, is it's not yours, it's theirs. And don't let those narratives affect you. Is that also what you would say to anyone listening to this who is struggling living their true identity in whatever dynamic they find themselves in? Yes. I wish everyone could rid themselves of shame. I just think it holds us all back. And I think self-love is so powerful, not only for yourself and your own becoming, but the ripple effects and then how you get to show up for other people in the world. Elliot Page, thank you for being the living embodiment of truth and for your utter transcendence. Thank you so much for coming on How to Fail. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.